Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Steve. I'm the assistant pastor here. If I haven't met you before, I'd love to do so after the service. Uh, We're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians this morning. I think one of the best moments in the later seasons of Seinfeld comes when George is engaged to Susan. And, and he realizes as soon as he asks her to marry him that this was an epic mistake. And it just feels like a death sentence for him. Every time he thinks about it, every time he's with her, he feels like he's doing a death march up to her apartment as he take, trudges those steps. And so he's always hanging out with Jerry and Elaine and Kramer and just bemoaning his fate. But he's George, so he's unable to do anything about it. He can't break up with her. But then one day, Elaine, at the suggestion of Jerry, starts to hang out with Susan. And to this point, George has kept his friends and his fiancée separate, but suddenly Susan is now part of the group. And George comes into Jerry's apartment, and he's trying to explain to Jerry that worlds are colliding, and when worlds collide, things blow up. And he says, as only George Costanza could say, you have no idea of the magnitude of this thing. If she is allowed to infiltrate this world, then George Costanza, as you know him, will cease to exist. Right now, I have relationship George, but there is also independent George. That's the George you know, the George you love. But if relationship George walks through this door, he will kill independent George. A George divided against himself cannot stand. (laughs) Now, George, as is so often true of him, was actually far more right than even he could realize. A George divided against himself cannot stand. And yet what George failed to grasp was that as human beings, the more that we try to have separate worlds, the more divided we actually are. Now, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians has a large subtext taking place just beneath the surface, and it has to do with worlds colliding. The Jewish and Gentile peoples who for so long had been so divided, insiders and outsiders, weirdos and world beaters, chosen and infidel, these people are now being woven into one new community called the church. And Paul has been driving hard toward the point that he's about to make. And our passage this morning is the pivot point for the entire letter. So let me read that and pray for us as we get started. This is from Ephesians chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. 
So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, we cannot comprehend what you prayed for us in the gospel reading that we, that we heard read earlier, that we would be one as you and your Father are one. We are so pulled apart by the desires that war in our hearts. We, we are not even cohesive people within ourselves. And yet, as we see in this letter, that your Spirit has formed us into a unity that is deeper than anything we could possibly imagine. I ask this morning that your spirit would be at work in this place to tear down walls of disunity, to remove our pride, and to bind us together in the bonds of peace in ways that have never before happened. Would we hear your voice calling us to yourself as one body? We ask in your name. Amen. Well, there's a lot happening in this passage, so I'd like for us to just focus on three things, and I alliterated them, so that's very professional. It's the reason for unity, the road for to unity, and the result of unity. As I said, this passage marks the pivot point in Paul's letter, so if you've been with us for a while, you'll know that for the first three chapters, Paul has been wandering in and out of exaltation and prayer and back again as he tries to capture for the Ephesian people what it means that this grand mystery of God's redemption and this plan in Christ has come to fruition. He tells them to consider that before all time, God purposed to bring life and healing to his world in Jesus, in the death and resurrection of Christ. Consider that God's plan, which till this point seemed to only include the Jewish people, is now revealed as for all peoples, all nations, all tribes. Consider that though all people had walked in death and rebellion, though all the Gentile peoples had wandered about in darkness without the covenant promises of God, that God himself made them alive with Christ, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in the people that follow him in faith and baptism, and that they are being built by God's Spirit into a dwelling place, into a temple, Paul says, without a dividing wall. Consider, Paul says, the love of Jesus. Try to know the unknowable. 
try to experience the overwhelming love of Jesus that stretches beyond the capacity of our imaginations. And in light of this, in light of the love of God that burns so fiercely that from eternity past, he was putting into place a plan that would require the life of God the Son to bring back a rebellious humanity. In light of the way that he has stepped into our self-destruction and quite literally saved us by calling us out of death and into life, in light of that, Paul says, I'm begging you guys, walk worthy of your calling. Live out your calling in a way that makes sense of it. As we continue through this letter over the next few weeks, there are going to be some difficult things that Paul says, and I think probably all of us are going to be offended by one or another of them. But this sentence right here is the key to the entire rest of the book. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now we're going to come back to verse 2 in a moment, but in verse 3, when Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, I think a lot of us tend to, to hear sort of the PBS nature documentary guy's voice in our head. You know the guy when, when the lion's attacking the thing, and he's like, oh, there's a lion attacking the thing. We hear, yeah, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. But that's not what Paul's actually saying, and really it's, it's a difficult phrase to translate. And so our translators have cleaned it up for us a bit, but the, the gist of it is, you guys, wake up! There is a unity that you have within the Spirit already. It's already yours, and yet you have to hang on to it with a white-knuckled tenacity. There is blood, sweat, and tears involved. You have got to work with all of your energy to maintain unity. Unity? That's the thing that we have to work so hard for? What's the big deal with unity? I mean, don't we have to sometimes just agree to disagree? Don't we sometimes just go our separate ways? Well, Paul gives us here a very shorthand way of thinking about the reason for unity, the base, the grounding for our unity, and that is in God himself. That the Trinitarian God is one, as he says in this passage, one Spirit, one Lord, one Father. And that the church is called together as one body, comprised of one faith pointed toward one hope, marked out by one baptism. And he's building off of the core confession of Jewish worship that we read earlier. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Christian church, even at its earliest had a proto-understanding of God's Trinitarian nature, that there were distinct persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they believed incredibly deeply that those persons were united as one God. And this one God has called us to one hope of salvation in Jesus, which is the one faith that we enter into through one baptism into one spirit. It's been said that the unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. When we understand that the entire story of the universe is built in the life of a Trinitarian God who exists in perfect harmony and love within himself, we can begin to understand why community is such a big deal, why unity within the people of God is so meaningful and so important. And it's a mystery because the unity that Paul is calling us to maintain finds its existence within God himself, and it's a unity that is birthed and held together by the Spirit And yet at the same time, without without glancing away, he very earnestly says we have to work at it. 
with all of our energy. We have to throw our entire weight into preserving this unity. And there's something mesmerizing and beautiful about unity, isn't there? Have you ever been down on the waterfront when, when the rowers are out, out on the Willamette? And you see like a dozen or more people and all of their oars are moving as one and they are just jetting through the water. It's incredible to see. I think unity is one of those things that most people are pretty happy to hear about. I mean, coexist bumper stickers are everywhere in Portland. But the question is, is how do we get unity? What is the road to unity? Well, I've been thinking about this a lot this week, and I, I think that I have arrived at a pretty straightforward way that, that unity can happen. So if you're, if you're a note taker, go ahead and, and get ready, because this is, it's, it's really short. It's very easy. Everyone just has to be exactly like me. And then, and then everything will be fine. We'll all be totally unified. We laugh, maybe to make me feel better about my, my corny jokes, but, but isn't that deep down how we all really feel? Unity is fine, but don't ask me to back down on my ideas. Unity is fine until I disagree with something, and then that thing becomes more important. Well, fortunately, or perhaps unfortunately, depending on your perspective, Paul gives us a list of the qualities that are necessary for unity to happen. He says in verse 2, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And the idea of doing things in love actually bookends this passage. So that there's no missing what Paul's point here is about how we can achieve unity. It's only done in love. And the kind of humility here that Paul is talking about would only be expected of slaves and indentured servants in his world. A free man in the Greco-Roman culture of, of Paul's day would not have wanted to have this kind of humility. It was not a virtue to be sought after. But Paul lists it as one of the primary things for God's people to live and act as one. Why? Because human pride, the ability for our minds to be convinced that we are always right, is staggering. The second thing that he calls us to, gentleness, is not weakness. In fact, it's a word that's used to describe beasts of burden, oxen. It's massive strength, but it's strength that's under control. Patience is the ability to not react immediately, even when it's warranted. Bearing with one another suggests taking on the burdens and even the wounds inflicted on us by others in order that love may have the last word. So what does that sound like? Or rather, who? Someone willing to experience humiliation even when he's in the right. Someone who with all the strength that is within him submits himself in humility to whatever is required so that another might have flourishing. Have we heard any stories of someone who had the resources of an army at his disposal, the strength, wisdom, and knowledge necessary to bring an entire world into being, but rather than flexing and fighting, is gentle? Gentle enough that marginalized, weak people find him lovely. 
Is there any person we've ever heard of who was perfectly within his rights to bring swift execution to his enemies, leaving nothing behind but the smoking charred remains of his burning rage and holiness, and yet in patience, in long suffering, he bore up the sins. He took on the wounds of his enemies. Do we know one who was so humble, so selfless, so full of patience, love, peace, and gentleness that as he was being wrongfully murdered, he cries out, Father, forgive them. Friends, you've heard me say this before, but if if this is the king of the kingdom, and this is how he chooses to inaugurate his kingdom, what could we expect that it means to be part of his church? Why would we think that it would require anything different? Well, sure, Steve, that sounds great, but aren't you forgetting that, that Paul also tells us to speak the truth in love? Don't we have an obligation to say something when things aren't going right? And the answer is, well, yeah, there, there are times that call for speaking up. There, there are things that, that call for correction, and to sit idly by while people injure themselves and one another is actually not loving. To let people just go wander about as if there is no truth, no reality to the kingdom of Jesus is not loving. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't tell us that we must speak the truth in love. What he says quite literally is we, must, we are to be truthing in love. Truthing in love. I think for a lot of us, we hear the phrase, speak the truth in love, and we use that as a gloss for when we can't control our mouths. And we just think, well, I just have to say it. So we think that what Paul means here is that we can say, well, I don't really like the way you did your hair today, or that shirt actually does make you look fat. Or I don't really like it when we sing that song, or I hate what the preacher just said, or I think you're doing X, Y, or Z wrong. That's not truthing in love. You want to know what truthing in love looks like? It looks like God on a cross. It's an all-knowing, all-powerful God giving up his rights, giving up his breath for people that hate him. Don't you see that Jesus could have waited right to the very last moment, right as they were putting him on the cross, and then hopped down and pointed out and said, this is why you're wrong, and this is why you're wrong. But he doesn't. Rather, like the prophet Isaiah said, as he was being wrongly oppressed and afflicted, he goes as a lamb to the slaughter, silent. He doesn't open his mouth. Truth in love is Jesus on the cross because Jesus is unwilling to pretend that our rebellion and failure is anything less than it is. When we realize that that our rebellion and sin is so great that it actually requires the blood of Jesus, that is incredibly offensive. The truth is hard to bear up under, but it's told to us in love because Jesus is actually giving his life for us. While he's telling us very clearly that our sin, our rebellion, our failure requires his death, He is saying that he does it willingly because he loves us so much. And the road to unity within the church feels a lot like dying because it requires us to become like Jesus. It requires us to take on humility, patience, gentleness, and to bear with one another in love. The road to unity is not easy, and it is not a denial of differences or wrongdoing. 
The road to unity is about truthing in love. It's repeating always and often that, yeah, guess what? You failed. You've done wrong. You've missed the mark. You've fallen short, and you have maybe wronged me or someone else in this building, but so have I. I have failed just as poorly as you have. That's what we have to tell each other, and we have to tell each other that we're both held by the same Savior, baptized in the same Spirit, wrapped in the same love, called to the same hope by the same God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. That's the road to unity. And what could the results of this kind of unity be? What comes of walking along the difficult road of humility and gentleness and patience? The results, I think, are staggering. As we engage with one another with humility and gentleness, we will see that, as Paul says, Christ has given gifts to his people. And the psalm that that Paul has in view here that we read earlier is is a song of God's victory in the world. And it actually says, as you may have noticed in the psalm that we read, that God receives gifts from people. But here Paul is actually interpreting as he quotes and saying that that in the victory of Christ and his resurrection, when he led captivity itself captive, that Christ, out of his wealth, out of receiving all things from the Father, now gives out gifts to his people, just as a victorious general would give the spoils of war to his soldiers. And the gift is that God equips the church, that Jesus descended in the incarnation, taking on flesh, taking on death, and then after his resurrection, he ascends back to the right hand of the Father, to the highest realm, and then what? He gives his spirit to the church. And the list of church leaders here that that Paul lists out is not exhaustive, but what Paul is driving at is that even in this unity, a unity that we have never fully experienced yet, that is just incomprehensible how we could be that unified. Even in that kind of unity, there is a great diversity. We are all to be working in diversity and unity. We're not stormtroopers who all look and act the exact same way. It's sort of like a really good jazz band. If you read that quote in the beginning of your bulletin, have you ever walked into like a blues bar or something, and, and you, you hear these sounds that you're like, how are they doing that? And what you see is that each member is kind of taking the lead at different times, but they're all complementing each other so well. There's no one guy who's taking over and making everything just sound like noise. The way that Paul describes it is that we fit together like a body. We all have functions, but they're all necessary for the body to grow. So Paul tells us that Jesus gave to the church apostles, people that saw the resurrection with their own eyes. He gave prophets, people who speak the word of God to his people, evangelists, those who take the message of the gospel into the lives of others, shepherds and teachers, people that are called to speak the message of the gospel to all of us at all times. And why? Why does he do that? Why am I up here? It's so that the entire church, the entire body, can go out and do the work of ministry, go out and do the works of service. So what happens as we begin to engage with one another with gentleness and humility? We'll begin to see ourselves as gifts given to the church, not in a prideful way, but also not in a false humility way. We we will start to understand that there are things that we are required to do in this place because that's how God made us. We'll begin to serve those around us in different ways, and as we do, we will cease being 
crying babies tossed about on a stormy sea and we will become a full-grown person. What Paul is trying to get across here is the idea that when we insist on doing things our own way, when we insist that our perspectives are equal to the whole truth, when we continue in selfish indulgence, we are like so many crying babies, crying out, somebody feed me, somebody carry me, somebody hold me. When we work toward unity by being completely humble, patient, gentle, and truthing with one another in love, we are no longer little babies, plural, but a full-grown person, singular. We are the one body of Christ growing up into him, and as he animates all that we are and all that we do, and as we each do our part, each working with all of our might to serve each other, we will find ourselves growing and being built up in love. And not only that, but as we put our efforts into maintaining the unity that is ours in the Spirit, people outside the church will take notice. They will notice that the song that we're playing together no longer sounds like so much noise, but actually sounds inviting and beautiful because we're actually working together toward unity in truth and in love. And they'll begin to wonder, just maybe, what if this Christianity thing is different than what they've always assumed? that perhaps it truly is an embodiment of the story of a God who became one of us and took on our punishment that we might live. As we come to this table, this is where we are going to continue to truth in love with one another, to be truth in love as we see what has been done for us on the cross and in Jesus, eating together at one table. Let me pray for us before we do. Father, it feels um, like such an impossible task as we look around and see so many different denominations, so many different churches, so many people even just sitting here with us that have such vastly different ideas about what is important and what we should be doing. It seems like unity is just this vapor that we can never quite grab. I ask that through the power of your Spirit, that we would become more like Jesus, that we would find ourselves being filled with humility and patience, bearing with one another in love. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.